have reached chapter 5. This will be sort of a continuation of last week's sermon. But I'm going to read, I'm going to read from 17 to the end of the chapter, but since it's so long, I'm going to read just to 32 for now, and then we'll finish the reading later in the sermon, okay? Follow along with me. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priests questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Lord, we turn to you now in Jesus' name, and we pray for your power to come and visit with us one more time. We need your help, Lord. We need your help to understand what you're saying in this passage. We need your help to get the full magnitude in our hearts of what happened when the message of the gospel began to fill Jerusalem. And Lord, this message has been filling the earth. Your glory has been covering the earth like the waters cover the sea ever since. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all of this is a church that for the first time is being persecuted. Being hurt, being imprisoned, suffering. Lord, I imagine there are people among us in this room who today are suffering because they are Christians. God, I pray you'd speak to them especially today. Minister to all of us and do it for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being seated. If it would serve you a title, the title to this sermon is The Blessing of Adversity. The Blessing of Adversity. When Aaron and I and our families were 
students at the Pastors College in Louisville, Kentucky. One of the most memorable bits of wisdom that we received came from our pastor at the time, Pastor CJ, which was this. He said to us, prepare your churches to suffer well. Prepare your churches to suffer well. Now, CJ said this because his own church had experienced its own share of suffering. But he also said this, I think, because he knows that there are many believers in our country that respond to suffering in unhelpful and unbiblical ways. One of the reasons we chose to study this book, the book of Acts, is as a church is because, well, even though the primary theme of the book, as you know, is the advance of the gospel in the world, it advances through much conflict, through much adversity. To quote Aaron from a couple of weeks ago when he preached, persecution is very often the vehicle of gospel advance. Persecution is coming. The Bible tells me so. We love the promises of Scripture, friends, but we really don't love those promises of Scripture. Jesus said to his disciples, you will be hated by all nations for my, my name's sake. And the gospel of the kingdom, kingdom must be preached in all nations, and then the end will come. Do you see heaven's timeline? You will be hated by all because of the gospel. The gospel will be preached. Jesus returns. That's our expectation as the church. Suffering is analogous to biblical Christianity, and it's a fact that we must embrace. And so as a pastoral team, our desire for Grace City Church is, is for us to learn how to endure in the face of opposition. Now, you and I may not suffer persecution in the same way that, say, a believer in another country may suffer persecution or that the church has throughout church history. We may, but we will suffer for Christ's sake in various ways. We will lose the things that we love. We will deal with physical infirmities. We will lose our reputation. But to suffer well, this very statement implies that there is a right way to suffer and a wrong way to suffer. The wrong way brings despair and defeat. The right way brings faith, greater faith, greater resolve, and even joy. And so, friends, the question for us as we study this book is when the fire is turned up, how can we suffer well. Because in our passage today, we see the, really the first painful persecution. And friends, do you notice something about this? God doesn't prevent it. He swept in to quickly put down deception, as in the case of the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. Next week, we're going to see God will come in and deal with division in the church. But persecution, he does not remove. Why? Well, there's a lesson that we're going to see today. 
If last week we saw that God leverages adversity to prove who the true church is, then for the rest of the chapter today, we're going to see that God leverages adversity to produce joyful endurance in the church. If adversity is to prove who we really are, then it's also going to be to make us endure and to endure joyfully. And the saints throughout church history can testify to this. For example, Octavius Winslow was a 19th century English pastor who who suffered immensely. And let's just be honest, in the 19th century, everyone suffered immensely. But Octavius Winslow was a man who suffered immensely. He had debilitating health issues for much of his life. He dealt with depression. He dealt with poverty. He lost siblings and children and his wife. The kiln was a familiar place for him. But because of this, he was able to leave things behind that we benefit from today. And he wrote books like The Precious Things of God. And in that book, he said this, trial is precious because it increases the preciousness of Christ. To know fully what Christ is, we must know something of adversity. We must be tried, tempted, and oppressed. We must taste the bitterness of sorrow, feel the pressure of want, tread the path of solitude, and often be brought to the end of our own strength and of human sympathy and counsel. Jesus shines the brightest to faith's eye when all things are dark and dreary. You see, friends, this is what God is not after. God is not merely after a tough church. Yes, he is after a tough church, but that's not all he's after. He's not only after a church that remains steadfast in trial. No, he is after a tough church that is happy in Jesus. He's after a church that has a humble and happy awareness that every trip into the kiln, the fires of the kiln, is meant to make Jesus more cherished and more adored and more worthy in our eyes of losing everything. As my friend, that good theologian, Bob Ross, used to say, you need a little darkness to show light. Of course, he was talking about painting, but you can apply that to all of life. It's true in life, especially for the Christian. Without difficulty, you can't know the goodness of God. So do we long for Christ to be more precious to us? Well, God will leverage adversity in your life if the answer is yes. How does he do that? Well, let's ask this question, and let's answer this question. I'll put this on the screen for you. We'll have three ways, three things we see in this text. How does adversity produce joyful endurance in the Christian, the first is that adversity advances God's purposes. Adversity advances God's purposes. So in what sense? Well, as we saw last week, uh, this news about the apostles' message and 
miracles, was making some big waves in Jerusalem and reaching throughout the surrounding countryside. And so we saw last week that more and more people were making their way to Solomon's portico to hear this guy, Peter the Galilean, preach about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And more and more people are bringing their physically and spiritually oppressed loved ones into Jerusalem in hopes of finding some relief from their suffering. So how do you think all this commotion hits the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the guys who are in charge of religion in Israel? Well, imagine that you are a medical doctor, some of you are, a medical doctor who is well-liked in a small town. And for years, people have come to you with their ailments, and they've trusted you, and you've helped them, and they've, you've built up this nice little practice. But then one day, some young whippersnapper, fresh out of medical school, opens up a practice, and almost overnight, you lose half of your patient base. How would you feel? Well, you'd be at least tempted to be jealous and envious. And we see this happen here in this passage. The apostles are going about preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. People are turning their backs on the temple religion. To make matters worse, the religious leaders we already saw in chapter 4 already told Peter and John to stop preaching in this name. So not only are the high priest and his associates jealous, they're angry because this band of apostles is defying their authority. And so once again, they're going to throw their authority around. And they go and they arrest the apostles again. And they put them in the public prison. Now more literally, that really says publicly with the crowds watching, they put them into prison. This was a public event. This was meant to draw attention to this arrest. Then all of a sudden, almost casually, Luke, the author of Acts, records the first of three prison breaks in the book of Acts. Verse 19, an angel supernaturally opens the door and the apostles walk right on out. Now, before we pass over this miracle, because you're going to see miracles over and over again in Acts, before we pass over this miracle, let's ask this question. Why the purpose? Why this miracle? What's the purpose for it? Either way, the apostles are going to stand before the religious leaders at some point and testify to why they're preaching Christ. So what is God doing with this miracle? Remember, in Acts, in the Bible, miracles are not merely to entertain. We Americans see miracles that way. That's not how God intends for them to be. This miracle was meant for some purpose in the mind of God. And I think what God is doing here is he's using this arrest, he's using this prison break to show the religious leaders and the apostles and everyone in Jerusalem that there is a higher authority than the religious leaders. He is the highest authority who is controlling the course of history. And I get this from the angel's instruction in verse 20. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. In other words, he's saying, go back to the temple. Go to the center of Jewish religious life 
and show the people that Jesus, the author of life, Acts 3.15, is the fulfillment of all of this. The temple, the sacrifices, the rituals, all of it. Tell them that. In other words, this arrest, this jailbreak, is meant to alert everyone in Jerusalem one more time that a new chapter in redemption history has taken, has taken place. It's begun. So pay attention. You see, friends, God is the most intentional being, I sound even silly saying it, in the universe. Everything he does is somehow meant to draw attention to his glory or his power or his mercy or his love or his justice or his wrath. Everything. Everything. And, and when we go through something hard, it can, it can be a temptation, isn't it? And it's an often dangerous exercise to try to figure out the specific reason. What is the divine reason for the troubles that we face? Friends, oftentimes, God doesn't tell us the reason. Oftentimes, our trials are simply meant to increase our faith in Christ, and that's it. He doesn't give us the reason for them. But here, Luke makes clear by the public nature of this arrest that even though God might not give us answers for our suffering, he does intend to draw people to his son through it. In fact, Luke give this, gives this wonderful summary a statement in verse 42 where he says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The public nature of this arrest is meant to give the church a platform to preach Christ. During the Maoist Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s in China, there was a great crackdown on organized religion. And the opposite effect happened in China. Something like one million Christians grew to like 50 to 60 million Christians. But at the time, Christianity was mainly a belief system that was amongst the poor, amongst the, the oppressed, amongst the uneducated of the society. Then in the late 80s, you may remember at least seeing history about this, the Tiananmen Square massacre occurred. Remember the famous tank man picture, the, the man standing trying to block the tanks from getting by? This, this massacre began when students began to protest the corruption that was happening in the government. But, but the, the Chinese government went and killed hundreds of protesters, and it was broadcast. And for the first time, Chinese academics, the upper class, saw the horror of a government that would kill unarmed students, and they began to grow disillusioned with the regime. But the effect of this was incredible. The academy began to turn to Christ. One report from 1990 said, we have reports of thousands of intellectuals turning to Christ. In at least five university cities, no less than 10% of the students have been reported as turning to Christianity. And so you might say, well, that was horrible what Mao did, and it was. Well, that was horrible what the military did, and it was. 
but God used that evil. And people began asking the big questions of life. And they began to wake up. And people saw that Jesus is Lord. Adversity advances God's purposes. Friend, do you see that happening in the adversity that you are facing? Do you believe that he can do that in the adversity that you're facing, even if you don't see it now? He's the most intentional being in the universe. And if you belong to him, you better believe that he has a purpose for this. And it's a good one. Second answer to our question. God leverages adversity to help unbelievers articulate the gospel. Verses 21 to 26 show us that when this council of 70, this was the Sanhedrin, the religious council in Jerusalem, when they gathered, they sent to collect the apostles for trial only to discover that they were not in jail, but they were in fact teaching and preaching in the temple. Of course, this greatly perplexes the council, but they and just don't, you don't seem to hear about why, what they, their reasoning was. They simply send the officers to quietly arrest these men because, again, the people held them in high esteem, and so they had to be careful about the way they did it. But the apostles came along. They complied quietly. Why did they comply quietly? Well, I think it's because they remembered their Savior who complied quietly when he was being arrested by the same council. And so they come and stand. The 12 stands before the high priest who, chapter 4, verse 6, says there's Annas, who, again, surprisingly doesn't seem to wonder how the apostles got out of the prison. What he is wondering is why, why the apostles have ignored the council's charge to stop speaking in Jesus' name, and instead they've done the opposite. They have spoken more in Jesus' name, and they've filled Jerusalem with the message. But notice maybe the real reason for the high priest's anger. Look at verse 28. He says, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The apostles, what have they done? They have implicated the religious leaders in Jesus' death. This is why the religious leaders are so irked at their preaching. What will become of their reputation if the crowds discover that they aren't everything they claim to be? What will become of their reputation if Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment of all that they stand for? And the high priest is so mad he can't even use Jesus' name. It's offensive. So Peter's speaking on behalf of the apostles responds, and notice Peter doesn't respond in self-defense. Why? Well, this opposition is not against Peter. It's not against the apostles. It's not against the church. It's against Jesus Christ. And so Peter lays down what we might say the first uh, inkling of an appropriate civil disobedience. He says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. This is... God's gospel, the New Testament says, and he sent us to proclaim this message. 
of this, John Stott, the commentator, says, To be sure, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and, generally speaking, to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. That is what we're headed toward. Such a response demands incredible courage. This is one reason why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. So if we are arrested for the sake of Christ, would it be stressful? Absolutely. But we can have confidence in knowing, friends, this is not our message. This is the Lord's message. And the Holy Spirit promises, I will give you the words that you need to speak in that very hour if confronted about the message. And so with confidence, Peter gets up in verse 30 to 32 and he responds to these accusations and he tells them what God did again. Don't you love how he's so God-centered? He doesn't say, well, we're doing this because we... No, God did. God raised Jesus. God exalted Jesus. God provided the Holy Spirit. And he gives a succinct gospel presentation. Very short. He speaks of need offer, and response. Do you see it there? Does your gospel presentation have these? Need, offer, response. Need. God raised Jesus, who the religious leaders killed by hanging him on a tree or a stake. Peter is alluding there to Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree or a stake. He's highlighting, although subtly, the, the punitive nature, the penal nature of Jesus' death for sin. There's a need. That need is that you and I be forgiven of our sin. Jesus is the one who can bring us that forgiveness only because he bore God's wrath. Offer. God exalted Jesus, whose death and resurrection gave to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. Genuine repentance is possible for anyone, including these religious leaders, by God's offer through Jesus Christ. And finally, a response God provided the Holy Spirit to all who obey him so they can bear witness to this truth. You know, I think so often we don't share the gospel because we overcomplicate it in our minds. Now, if you're forced to defend it and preach it as much as these guys did, of course, you're going to learn how to articulate it. But, but don't, don't miss one of God's most wonderful reasons for bringing adversity into our life. He wants us to be able to learn how to articulate to ourselves the only message that can save us or anyone else. Oftentimes, in times of adversity, the most accusing voice is my own and your own. Do you know how to articulate the gospel to your own heart? None of us in this room, I hope, but maybe you have been arrested for the sake of the gospel, but we've all faced extended times of adversity. And in my experience, two of the most difficult 
seasons when the kiln is the hottest is that is, is first when, when people misunderstand us because of our faith in Christ. And secondly, when we're grieved by some recurring sin. External and internal charges. What do we need in that time more than anything else? We need to behold the one who endured much evil against himself, lest we become weary in our souls. We need to behold the one who understands what it's like to suffer and to suffer on behalf of our sin. We need him. One of the reasons why I continually quote John Newton to you is because of his refreshing honesty with himself. This was a guy who saw his sin, but when he saw his sin, he didn't stay there. He used it as an opportunity to articulate the gospel to his heart. And so he wrote things like this. I feel so little of these truths in my own soul. Can you say that today? Yet, in the midst of all my fears and unworthiness, I am enabled, surely by the work of the Holy Spirit, to cleave to the promise and to rely on the power of the great Redeemer. I know I am engaged in the cause against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. If he died and rose again, if he ever lives to make intercession, there must be safety under the shadow of his wings. There would I lie. Where do you lie when faced with fears and accusations and unworthiness? Where do you run for refuge? Friends, you only have two places to go. An earthly resource or Jesus. That's it. And some of us have been running to earthly sources, whether that's ourselves or others, for so long, and we can't figure out why we're in such turmoil all the time. And it's because we haven't learned to articulate the gospel to our own hearts. Need offer response. What's my need? What does God offer me through Jesus? How am I going to respond? If you're in the kiln of adversity, guarantee God has you there so that you might learn to articulate the gospel to your heart. Third and finally, adversity amplifies our joy. We continue our reading. When they heard this, that's the religious leaders, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, 
you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Circle that word in your Bible. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Religious leaders are enraged. Why? Yes, because of the accusation that they killed Jesus, but because of the implication that the religious leaders do not have the Holy Spirit because they are in disobedience of God. This makes the high priest want to drive these men to the execution block stat. They hate these men. Now, in the ruling council, there's about 70 in there. There's 70 men. They were composed of both Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were the priestly group. These were the guys connected to the temple, uh, the high priest was a Sadducee. These were the more elitist, more aristocratic, more wealthy of the religious leaders. They were more political than the Pharisees. Uh, as you know, they de denied the supernatural. They, they denied the resurrection. The Pharisees were a minority in the Sanhedrin. Uh, they were known to their, for their strict adherence to the law, the, the, the Torah. And uh, they were more popular among the people because they held usually, they're usually more middle class people. Well, Luke tells us that in verse 34 that a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel stood up and he was a well-respected man, so much so that one historian said that when Gamaliel died, Phariseeism died with him. Gamaliel stood up and he gave orders to put the apostles outside. And Gamaliel says, would you guys just chill out? That's the Earl Standard Version, the other ESV. He says, have you forgotten about the Bash brothers, Thutis and Judas? Remember what happened to them? They all had a little following, and their followers followed them, but then when they died, their followers scattered. Guys, leave these Galileans alone. If what they are doing is man's work, it'll fail, but if it is God's work, we better watch out. We don't want to try to fight against God. Now listen. Listen. What Gamaliel says is absolutely true, okay? This group of people believed that if this message about this author of life kept growing, at least Gamaliel did, this was God's work. And it has. Today, Christianity is by far the world's largest religious group. Pew Research says that in most of the world's 195 countries, you can find a Christian somewhere. Aslan is on the move. The gospel of the kingdom is being preached in all parts of the globe. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. But do you notice something wrong with Gamaliel's response? Not once in this account do we see Gamaliel or any of these religious leaders seeking to learn if what Peter says is actually true. Gamaliel, noble and respected as he is, is trying to take a middle ground that does not exist. He sees Jesus like so many people see Jesus, a good teacher, a religious nice guy, who died for his beliefs, not unlike Thutis and Judas. But with Jesus, 
There is no middle ground. Usually the people that say Jesus was just a nice guy that died for his religious beliefs never actually read anything Jesus said. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever is not, does not gather with me scatters. These religious leaders are trying to take a passive and indifferent approach like so many, and maybe some in this room are taking or trying to take a middle ground. But friends, at the end of the day, a decision must be made. The die must be cast. And either you will bow down at the author of life and worship, or you will do like these religious leaders did. You will reject him and you will kill him and you will kill his followers. And the first, you'll live forever. And the latter, you'll die an eternal death. There is no middle ground. None were either with him or against him. The apostles were with him. And what happened? Those who were against him acted on their rage. They didn't just warn them here like they did in chapter 4. They beat them. Mind you, this beating wasn't a couple of punches or slaps. The word used here in the original refers to whipping, lashing. This was the famous 39 lashes with a short whip covered with shards of clay and glass and bone and rock that was applied to the back, a bare back, just shy of one more whip that equal 40, that would be capital punishment. 39 they can get away with. Notice what verse 41 says. And they left the presence of the council, limping, backs bleeding, shredded like raw hamburger meat, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do we desire for Christ to become more precious to us? than he is now? Do we desire a joy that runs deeper than the wounds of our difficult circumstances? Friends, if the answer is yes, then let's not be surprised, as Peter would later write, at the fiery trial when it comes upon us, as though some strange thing is happening to us. Yes, we may not suffer persecution in the same way, but we will suffer for Jesus' sake. And the Bible says that we will be blessed. Because in suffering, Jesus becomes more real than life itself. Before we close, I want to spend my last few minutes sharing a little bit about something that happened in mine and Michelle's, my wife, and our family's life a couple of years ago. Um, we talked at length yesterday about this. This is not something we've shared publicly much. Uh, but I think it's applicable, and I want to share it in order to maybe encourage some of you to come out of hiding as well. Some years ago, okay, can't do this without. <clears throat> some years ago, my dear wife uh, began to experience some pretty severe health issues. 
and uh, it was characterized by lots of tears and, and little sleep. It began with insomnia, pretty bad insomnia. I mean like one to two hours of sleep per night type of insomnia that led to some inexplicable mental health struggles. Because of the nature of mental health struggles, especially in our country, and the stigma that mental health issues tends to get, have, uh, we did feel pretty isolated in it. Uh, our pastors and their wives, praise God, cared for us so well. But we came to the end of ourselves. As Winslow said, we were brought to the end of our own strength the end of human sympathy, the end of counsel. But it had the effect of driving us to Christ like we have never been before or since. Let me tell you, if, if, if you want friendship with Jesus, if you want to know friendship with Christ, suffering is only the, the only real way to know that. That term in Proverbs, the, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, is true of Christ. During that time, Michelle and I, we, we, we held each other's hands a lot, and that was usually after we argued and fought a lot. And at night, we would, we would send the kids upstairs, and my two kids, are, two of my older kids are with me here, so this is probably very awkward for them. But we, we, we sent the kids upstairs to bed, and we would open the Bible, and we would read Scripture every night. And we would lay in bed and we would read a psalm together. And we prayed continually. And we even sang hymns together. Guys, we do not sing together, Michelle and I. But we sang hymns together. And what that time taught us is this. The Bible is true. Christ is an ever-present help and our time of need. And he taught us, like Jesus said to Peter, will you too go away? And Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go than to the one who suffered for us? Where else can we go to the one who understands what it's like to feel this way? to feel isolated, to feel rejected, to feel cast off, to feel like no one else understands. Who else can we go who can give meaning to our suffering in this way as Jesus can? At that time, I, I repeatedly read one of Newton's letters to a sick friend, and I've shared this with many, and I, I want to read just a portion of it to you, and then we'll pray. Here's what Newton says. He says, I trust this I trust this sickness of your body is and shall be for the health of your soul. All the fruit shall be to take away sin. Therefore, be of good courage. We count them happy that endure. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord chastises. He intends this dispensation to afford you the honor of a conformity to Jesus, listen, who went through sufferings to the kingdom. But how different 
were his sufferings from yours. There's no sting in your rod. There's no wrath in your cup. Your pains and infirmities do not cause you to sweat blood, nor are you left to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our trials are indeed intermixed with the abundance of mercies. Loved ones, the happiest Christians I have ever met are those men and women who have suffered more than I have. They're the happiest Christians. And while I'm not standing up here advocating that we all go and find ourselves some kind of suffering, I just simply want you to leave this place knowing that when you do find it, that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's how we suffer well, is when the eyes of faith see a Savior who loved himself and gave himself for us. That's a Savior worth following. That's a Savior worth living for. That's a Savior worth giving everything for. That's a Savior worth abandoning that private, hidden lifestyle for and come out into the light and receive hope and forgiveness and grace.